Well, as you know, we've been spending some time considering the red letter Jesus of looking at his words, and we have paused on a passage in Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48, in which uh, there is debate, there's a dispute, there is um, disagreement uh, in regard to the interpretation of those words. And uh, Larry, for the two previous Sundays, not last Sunday because of snow, but the two before that, presented um, just, I thought, uh, an amazing uh, uh, presentation of his interpretation and the interpretation of many before him of uh, those uh, words of Jesus. Uh, first, I want to say thanks to Larry for, um, even though I can disagree with you, um, I think that you have been a brilliant example of how we are to approach um, our um, the scriptures that are debatable and around which there's disagreement and there is a different interpretation. Um, instead of just sort of sitting and, and waiting for someone to tell you this is how you should think about it, you've clearly uh, done your homework and you've clearly gone in and studied the history of the church, you've gone in and studied uh, the, the theology and the scriptures and uh, you really have done uh, your homework. And, and I have to say that I, I agree with the lion's share of what Larry has taught, <laughs> um, that, that Jesus is calling each of us to look um, on our enemies with agape love and to love them with agape love. What I, what I don't agree with is his cheap prank of uh, trying to bribe you all with chocolate bars. <laughs> that was my man. <laughs> well, actually, if you look under your chair, you all want a car. You talk about things, but you don't hear that. <laughs> But more seriously, what, what I don't agree with um, in Larry's presentation is the notion that there is no circumstance in which resisting evil with force is justified. Or even loving, I would say. What I don't agree with is, is the notion that there are no circumstances in which resisting evil with force is justified or loving. Is he wrong? Am I right? Am, am I wrong? Is he right? Um, you're going to have to decide. Um, I want to start off, though, by talking about paradigms, and specifically the power of a paradigm. Now, we've talked about paradigms before, but a paradigm is a, a standard. It's a perspective that you have uh, that shapes how you see things and how you will behave or how you will respond. For instance, if your paradigm is that you are an optimist, 
When faced with challenges, as an optimist, you will see opportunities. Um, as a Leaf fan, like, <laughs> that's, that's the party line. You know, we're, we're constantly faced with challenges, and we constantly hear the general manager and the coach saying, well, we just see opportunities. We see opportunities. They are clearly optimists. So if you're an optimist, when you're faced with challenges, you see opportunities, and you would see the glass as half full, right? But if you're a pessimist, when you're faced with challenges, you'll see those challenges as obstacles. Something that's going to hold you back or get in your way. And you see the glass as half empty. Now just think about that for a second. The truth of the matter is that both the optimist and the pessimist is looking at the same glass. There's nothing different about it. And you know what? They're both right. Aren't they? They're both right. It's half full and it's half empty. There's no denying that. The truth of the matter is that both the optimist and the pessimist are looking at the same glass and they're coming to a different conclusion based on the paradigm that they're coming from. So when I look at the words of Jesus in question, in Matthew 5, the question is, who is right? I believe we are both right. <coughs> I need to go a little bit further with this idea, though, of both being right. It's clear from Scripture that certain activities can for one person be a sin and for another be innocent. I look at that apple. For, and you know, it, we don't know if it was an apple, probably a pomegranate. Who knows? But it was a piece of fruit. Adam and Eve are forbidden to eat from it from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's a piece of fruit. If Adam and Eve eat that piece of fruit, it's a sin. <laughs> right? If I go home and eat an apple out of my fridge, it's not a sin. Am I right? Now, if God told me not to eat that apple out of That's the fridge, right. it's a sin. That's right? <laughs> right? And we've looked at this before, but I, I want to remind you of Paul's teaching around food sacrifice to idols as it relates to an activity that for one is a sin and for another is not a sin. If you recall, back in the day when Paul was teaching these churches in the early church, there was a lot of idolatry. And there were temples where you would go and worship. And one of the things that you would do, like the Hebrews, is you would sacrifice animals to the pagan god. 
Now that meat that was sacrificed to those idols ended up in the market. Right? The meat that had been sacrificed to idols ended up in the market. And there was a big controversy within the church as to whether Christians should be eating that meat. For some, it was a tacit approval of idol worship. And for others, it was not an issue. And this is what Paul says about eating the meat that had been offered to idols. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do eat, do not eat, and no better if we do. So what is he saying there? Meat is amoral, right? Meat in and of itself has is neither good nor bad. It's the intent that matters. One person can eat meat offered to idols completely innocently. The Apostle Paul said that. I could eat meat from given idols. Another person may not be able to separate his eating of that meat from pagan worship, and may, it may shift him back into idolatry. Because he knows he's eating food that had been sacrificed, and it becomes more than just having a good lunch for that person. For one person, it is right. For one person, another person, it is wrong. You see, it's this process of discernment, self-scrutiny, introspection, that differentiates between the practice that many in the Old Testament participated in and what we are called to as Christians in the New Testament or under the New Covenant. You see, many of the Israelites abused the law by disregarding the spirit of the law. They basically wanted to say, okay, just tell me what I can do and what I can't do. And I will do what I can't do, or what I can do, and I won't do what I can't do. But it had nothing to do with how they thought or their hearts. It was just, tell me what to do. It's like a husband who says to his wife, I love you. And he does everything that a dutiful husband is supposed to do. But the wife still thinks, he doesn't love me. You can separate the two, right? You can do the deeds without having your heart in it. You see, in the New Covenant, it was predicted in Jeremiah, and it was also quoted in Hebrews. In the New Covenant, I will put my law in their mind and write it on their hearts. Before that, it says that 
you know, it just, it's not, you know, you have to be told and you just do what you're told. It's beyond that. The new covenant includes making discernment, distinguishing, grappling with, like Larry's grappled with this issue. Grapple with it and see what it is that you're supposed to do. And this is what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. It was this abuse of trying to separate the spirit from the letter. This hypocrisy, this duplicity, in which people were violating the spirit of the law by just following the letter of the law and assuming that they were doing the right thing. Remember Jesus said, you've heard it said, this is in the law, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, don't lust. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, if you hate someone, you're guilty of murder. Divorce, don't divorce. But I tell you, be faithful to your spouse. <clears throat> so I offer this, this preamble to my response to Larry in order to suggest that I believe both interpretations of Jesus' words are acceptable. It is the intent, the intent of the forceful resistance to evil. I've chosen those words carefully. It is the intent of forceful resistance to evil that matters, not the forceful resistance itself. Larry has studied scripture and has arrived at the conclusion that any violence, including war, is unjustifiable under any circumstance. I question whether Jesus is teaching pacifism in Matthew 5, 38 to 48. So let's just read those passages again. Eye for an eye. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand your coat over as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Love your enemies. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know the conclusions that Larry has come to regarding that passage. This is what I would say. I believe the decision of a Christian, whether or not to participate in a just war, or to serve in the enforcement of just wars, or to forcefully resist evil on behalf of others, is a matter of personal conscience for the following reasons. 
Now, Larry and, and, and some of the folks that he's read, a common term used for what Jesus is talking about right now, about adultery, murder, oaths, uh, divorce, and now violence, are known as the antitheses. You've heard it said, but I say. I take exception to the word antitheses. I think it's an uncharacteristic, it's an inaccurate characterization of what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. I believe that Jesus is clarifying the spirit of the law and correcting its opportunistic abuse. In other words, oh, I've never murdered a soul in my life, but everybody knows you're the most hateful person in town. Right? Remember Jesus' preamble to his teachings? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, not until heaven and earth disappear, not the single, not a smallest letter, not the last stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law. You see, I don't see what Jesus said as antithesis or contradictions. I see them as an explanation of the spirit behind those statements. So we see this with his teaching about murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, and now we see it in relation to your enemy. This isn't a new teaching. The spirit of the law <coughs> is what authored the letter of the law. Let me say that again. The spirit of the law is what authored the letter of the law. It's the spirit that led to the writing of the law. Clearly God's intent in commanding do not murder has always been, always was, from the first time it was ever written by Moses, was motivated by his desire for us to love each other. Clearly God's intent in commanding do not commit adultery was motivated by his desire for his children to be pure in heart. Clearly God's intent in commanding us not to divorce was motivated by his desire for us to be faithful to our spouses in heart and action. And in the same way, God's intent, an eye for an eye, was motivated by his desire for us to love our enemies. I believe it is wrong to look at that statement, an eye for an eye, as permission to avenge or revenge a wrong. That's not what that is. An eye for an eye was said to prevent the, the offense in the very first place. It is to prevent someone knowing there are consequences that somebody should know that Behind an eye for an eye is this idea of prevention, not justification for revenge. That, I believe, is the spirit of that statement, an eye for an eye. 
Which leads me to my next reason why I believe that forceful resistance to evil is permissible in certain circumstances. Agape love was not the only quality of God manifest on the cross. Agape love was not the only quality of God manifest on the cross. I am convinced that God's love for humanity is not incompatible with his use of forceful wrath. The cross is the greatest example of this. It was the wrath of God that was exacted on the cross. Jesus took upon him our sins and therefore was subject to the wrath of God, which was crucifixion or death. The wrath of God is, you, you can't, in my estimation, erase scripture that teaches about the wrath of God as though God is only love. I believe that the wrath of God is an important characteristic and quality of God. And, and I'm going to show you how that relates to forceful resistance to evil. The wrath of God. And, and Larry and I disagree on this too. Um, Larry gave me a, a book and I, and I read it and I kept saying, I don't believe this stuff, Larry. But Larry strongly would believe and agree with that. And it, is, it has to do with, in the Old Testament, you know, there's, there's horrific stuff that has been not just condoned by God, but ordered by God. You could say genocide. You could. Right? And the example that I'm referring to is found in Genesis, and then again in, in Exodus. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. This is God talking to Abraham. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet re reached its full measure. So Abraham has gotten to Canaan, has been called, he's come to the promised land, Abraham, and he's looking around and God is saying, I'm going to give you all this. Right? But there's people living there. Right? They have houses, uh, you know, they, they have businesses, they have families, right? And God is saying, I'm going to give this to you. And Abraham goes into a dream and, and, and God says, but I'm not giving it to you now. And what's the reason why he doesn't give it to him now? Because their sin has not reached a point where I am going to exact just justice. I'm not going to judge them at this point. But the fourth generation, <laughs> your people will come back here. And look at the words now of, of God to Moses which actually was fulfilled through Joshua, his protege. God says this, My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. We don't like to think of God in those terms. But why is he doing it? 
because their sin has reached the point where God, who is God, <laughs> determines that they are subject to his justice and his judgment. And Joshua goes in and wipes them out. He actually didn't wipe them all out. <laughs> he should have, but he didn't. Right? He was supposed to, but he didn't. Right? Which led to all kinds of problems. So you say, well, 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 well what about, what about the, you know, the New Testament? Because that's the old, some people have this idea about the Old Testament. We're in the New. We don't bother with the Old. Did God the Father love the Son? Did God the Father punish Christ on the cross? God hates sin. And because he is God, will exact his judgment when it suits him. And this is just. Jesus talked about wrath a lot. Jesus would give parables, and often the conclusion was the bad guys who wouldn't repent, who were evil, got judgment. This is a scary thing, Jesus says in Matthew 13, 42. Those bad guys will be thrown out or into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God exact judgment. Whether God exact judgment in this life or at the end of your life doesn't matter. He will judge. He has the authority to judge, and his justice is perfect. And so he will exact judgment. And then again, Paul writes about, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath, prepared for destruction? You see, destruction, violence, wrath of God is not incompatible with the true character of God. He never does it for an evil purpose or with evil motivation, but he does do it. He does exact judgment. He does destroy the firstborn in Egypt. He does drown Noah's generation. <laughs> Judgment is part of God's nature and character. Third reason, I would say that forceful resistance to evil should not be excluded for the Christian. And that is that God established a mechanism for dispensing his wrath in the present. Let's just go back to the Old Testament again. Joshua was God's agent, and he exacted the wrath of God on the Canaanites. We often think, you know, in terms of genocide, you've got to look at the historical record of what those Canaanites were doing. I mean, it was beyond evil what they would do, sacrificing their children to God, right? I mean, it's beyond evil. So, you know, like, you think genocide, yes, <laughs> but at the same time, what is God 
judge it. You have to keep that in mind. So I believe that God has the right to judge and to exact violence in his judgment if he so chooses. But thirdly, Scripture is very clear. God has established a mechanism for dispensing his wrath in the present. And the dispenser of that is civil authorities. Let's go back again. I was lost my thought. Let's go back to Joshua. Joshua was the agent that God used to dispense his wrath. Did Joshua sin because he did exactly what God told him to do? No. It wasn't a sin. He was God's agent. That has changed. God's agent now is civil authorities. Right? And so we, Paul says, for the one in authority is God's servant for good. For the one in authority is God's servant for good. But if, if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. I gave them the sword. They're God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Romans 13, 4. So I don't believe forceful resistance to evil is wrong. In fact, I believe it's God-ordained. The question remains whether the Bible restricts Christians from participating in forceful resistance. In other words, should I not, as a Christian, be part of the military? Should I not, as a Christian, be a police officer? Where I am, under the authority God given, gives to me, exacting his justice. On one occasion, John the Baptist was baptizing people. And that baptism was a baptism of repentance. People would come and say, I have sinned and I want to be made right with God. And John would baptize them and they were forgiven. Right? It was a baptism of repentance. All kinds of people were coming. Just before the guys I'm about to mention came <laughs> were the, some tax collectors. Right? What were they known for? Extorting, right? For abusing their authority, their power. So they came and, and, and John gave them a response. But when these soldiers came, probably Roman soldiers, this is the exchange in Luke 3.14. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do now that we are, have been made right with God? Should we throw down our arms? Should we walk away from our careers? John's reply is, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely, but be content with your pay. What's the, he's talking about intent, right? Don't use the God-given authority that you have been given by God to exact his wrath, right, for your own evil purposes, to take advantage of things. Is being a soldier incompatible with righteousness? Wouldn't John have said, you got to quit, guys? The idea that being a Christian removes you from life as usual is not supported in the New Testament. 
This is why Paul did not tell slaves, for instance, you are free. Leave your masters. As a factor, no, he didn't. He said, you go back and serve your masters well, with pure hearts. You know, like Paul gets criticized for that. But like, God didn't come in the person of Jesus Christ to revolutionize society, but to revolutionize hearts. Now, it might be possible that you cannot be in the military and you cannot be a police officer because you get a kick out of violence. And you're going to use that authority given to you by God for evil intent. Now, if your way of life is inextricably linked to sin, for instance, if you're a prostitute or you're a gang member, yes, you, you need to quit. <laughs> but I don't see those occupations in the same light as I do people in the military or people in law enforcement. So to review, <laughs> what do I believe? I believe that, that Scripture and Jesus' words in the sermon do not resist or restrict forceful resistance to evil in every situation. I believe Jesus' words do demand enemy love, but enemy love does not prohibit forceful resistance to evil. Turning the other cheek should not be applied indiscriminately, and in an isolation to the breadth of Scripture, which suggests that forceful resistance to evil is not always wrong, and in fact is ordained by God. To be exact, I personally would trust God to help me turn the other cheek in matters related to myself. This is how I have come, and Larry has come to his conclusions, I have come to mine. I would, however, engage in forceful resistance to evil as an agent of the state. In other words, if there was reason, just reasons, uh, to go to war, and I was drafted, I would serve. In fact, in certain cir circumstances, I would forcefully resist injustice, even if I wasn't an agent of the state, a situation where the well-being of others is at stake. The example of someone breaking into my house and is about to kill my family, I would resist. Intent is the key. Last picture. Two men could kill an enemy combatant, one for evil purposes and one for righteous purposes. That's what I say. One could kill because he hates the so-and-so. And one could do it because he's resisting an evil force. One to exact punishment out of hatred. One to exact justice out of a heart of enemy love. Justice is not incompatible with love. Forceful resistance to evil is not unjust. Now, let's go back to Larry's first story. 
Larry presented a hypothetical situation where it's World War II and the, uh, you're, you're an allied force, you're overtaking a German territory, and as an allied soldier, you come up and there's a German laying by a tree and he's exhausted, he can't fight anymore. And you both find out that you're both Christians. And ultimately, um, because you believe in just war, you end up killing your fellow believer. Um, I believe there's a third option. What I would do in that situation is I would, in, I would refuse. First of all, kill all is an unjust policy. I would never engage in a kill all uh, because it's inconvenient to take prisoners. That's unjust. It's unethical, right? So I would never engage in that, and I would just take the consequences. I would say, come with me, buddy. Um, I'm not going <coughs> to kill you because my officer or my general told me I need to kill everybody, right? So your reaction or your choice and what to do about this um, is really all about listening to God's spirit and how he's prompting you. I don't believe forceful resistance is, the re is actually the issue. It, the issue really is, is your intent in doling out uh, that resistance. Larry's right. I'm right too. Let's pray. <laughs> Dear Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can study its breadth and, and come up with conclusions. And Lord, I know that um, we will never know uh, everything in this life. But I thank you, Lord, for the idea that even those things that are disputable do not need to divide us, um, but that we can agree to disagree and continue to love. And not just each other, but our enemies. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.